from his people again. Gladly forever we'll adore him. Revelation chapter 1, thankful that Dave uh, repented and started where he did or it would be a long morning. Once you've found your place there, I want you then to find John chapter 12 because I want to start there with a thought. This is Palm Sunday, if you are familiar, of course, with the Easter season. Palm Sunday is the Sunday before Jesus was crucified when he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and they put palm leaves in his way as he rode in. John chapter 12 and verse 12, in two verses here, John quotes Psalm 118. And he says, on the next day, much people that were uh, come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the King of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. Now do this for me also, if you can, go back to the middle of your Bible to Psalm 118. We'll break in those pages a little bit. Psalm 118 and verse 25 is where John quotes, but if you would start as far back as verse 19, 20, opening the gates for the coming of the Lord. Uh, verse 20, this gate of the Lord into which the righteous shall enter. Verse 22, the stone that the builders refused has become the head uh, stone of the corner. It is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Verse 24, this is the day then which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it, which is actually a prophecy of the coming millennial day when Christ reigns on the earth. It will be a wonderful day. And so what will God's people say when Christ comes into this gate of the city and in uh, as king over the Jews? Hosanna, verse 25, which in our language is save us now. Hosanna in Hebrew means save now. I beseech thee, O Lord, O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. God is the Lord, which has shown us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords under the horns of the altar. Thou art my God, and I will praise thee. Thou art my God, I will exalt thee. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, and his mercy endures forever. Now, if I ask you to turn to one more uh, passage to Daniel to the right now, just split uh, in half, kind of where you are in Psalm and, and John, and you'll have the book of Daniel. And I want to show you a prophecy of the coming of the Lord on Palm Sunday so that you understand why we recognize this day and what happened in that time. We've read Jesus coming into Jerusalem, but of course, the same people who said, Hosanna, save us now, a few days later will say, crucify him, we'll not have this man to reign over us. And yet the fulfillment of the psalm would be for Christ to rule on David's throne. So in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel receives this prophecy of the 70 weeks, verse 24. 70 weeks, Daniel 9, 24, are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. And when all of these are done, Christ will be reigning on the earth. And here's what will be accomplished upon thy holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, 
to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and the prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand when these things will begin. From the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem. In Nehemiah chapter 2, a few years after Daniel's prophecy, God gives this command for them to go uh, and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And so they begin to do it in 444 B.C. Nisan first in their calendar, 444 B.C. So from that time, verse 25 now in Daniel 9 still, until Messiah the Prince. That expression, until Messiah the Prince, will bring an end to this part of Daniel's prophecy on Nisan 10, 32 AD, the very day Jesus rode into Jerusalem. Verse 25 still, during that time shall be seven weeks, then add to that three score and two, that is seven and 62 equals 69. And the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. After three score and two weeks, meaning... After the 69 weeks, 7 and 62 are done, when Jesus will ride into Jerusalem, and by the way, we can calculate these years, we can calculate even the days, because we know exactly 70 times 7 on a Jewish calendar of, of lunar months, 30 days to each month, we know exactly how many days there would be in those years. We know it would start on Nisan 1, 444 B.C. and end on Nisan 10, 32 A.D. To the day that he rides into Jerusalem. After that, we are waiting for the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy, right? Which we call the tribulation period. What will happen between the 69th week, which ended at the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem, and later when that tribulation period begins? Well, verse 26 of Daniel 9. After this, three things will happen. Number one, Messiah shall be cut off. That is, and that happened that week. He rode into Jerusalem on Sunday. He was crucified either Thursday or Friday. I kind of lean toward a Thursday crucifixion myself. Uh, the general thought is Friday. But uh, Daniel's not specific about that. Messiah will be cut off. Second thing that will happen but not for himself, the people of the prince that shall come. The prince that shall come will be a Roman. He will be the Antichrist. And his people are Romans. They shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. When did that happen? 70 AD. So Messiah is crucified. The city is destroyed in 70 AD. And the third thing is, unto the end there shall be, be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. Wars and rumors of wars, in other words, until the end. And I think we've had that, and those are still going on. Then, verse 27, he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. I'd like to stop and preach on prophecy this morning. <clears throat> Some man who is going to be the Antichrist and when we don't even know who he is and how that will develop into the Antichrist, he will make a covenant, a treaty with Israel to protect Israel. He's a Westerner. He's a Roman, in other words. He will protect Israel for one week, that last week of Daniel's prophecy. And he'll protect her for three and a half years. And then at the middle of that period, he will turn on her, of course, and, uh, and persecute her for the last three and a half years. So the... 
triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem is described, prophesied. We could go to Zechariah. Let's go back now to Revelation 1. But we could, we could go to these prophecies and see the description of Jesus riding into Jerusalem. But what we know is that he will be rejected in that week. Rather than received, rather than these people in their heart truly saying, we believe you are our Messiah, Hosanna, save us now. In a few days, they will be persuaded to, to give him over to crucifixion, and they will desert him. And that yet is prophesied by the prophet Daniel. Now, if Israel had really meant save now, they wouldn't have crucified him five days later. And by the way, I, uh, uh, th there is a triumphal entry coming, and I should have had you go to Ezekiel. Uh, chapter 43, but let me read it to you. In Ezekiel 43, in the first four verses, Ezekiel describes the time when Jesus will come in glory, and he will come into Jerusalem, and they will receive him as a king. Afterwards, he brought me to the gate, even the gate that looked toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. You ever hear about the eastern gate, Jesus coming in the eastern skies? His voice was like the noise of many waters. The earth shined with his glory. And it was according to the appearance of the vision which I saw, even according to the vision that I saw when I came to destroy the city. The vision is like the vision that I saw the river Chabar. Verse 4, the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate whose prospect is toward the east. Someday Jesus will come and his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives and that mountain will split in half and leave a valley right up to the eastern gate, which is to this day walled shut. And he will enter into Jerusalem in that eastern gate and he will reign on David's throne for a thousand years. So the triumphal entry is yet coming, folks, and not one in which they will reject him, but one which they will receive him. Now, in Revelation 1. Come back on Wednesday night if you're interested in prophecy. We're, uh, we have a study going of the rapture on Wednesday night, and it's a good study. You'd, you would uh, enjoy it. I'm a little nervous without this choir behind me. What happened here today? <laughs> Everyone deserted me up here, you know? Ushers, check and see where those choir members went. Make sure they're not in the bathrooms or the hallways or something like that. All right. Revelation 1. And we come to verses 13 through 16, which is this great description of Christ. We are now waiting for this 70th week to come. We are waiting to see Jesus. And when we see him, he will look like this. When he comes to greet us in the sky, he will look like this. When he comes to enter into Jerusalem and reign on David's throne, he will look like this. If you know the Lord as Savior, you will see him in the rapture as you are taken up into the air and meet this Lord in the air, and so will you ever be with the Lord. This is what he looks like if you're looking forward to seeing him. And when he comes back in glory to enter into Jerusalem again, this is what he will look like. So we come to verse 14, and I thought it fitting just to come back here and look at these descriptions of Christ, two of them this morning, had the Jewish people understood these things, had they really believed even what John is saying here, they maybe would have really received him. They really would have meant save us now. You really are the Messiah. You are the fulfillment of Psalm 118. But they did not believe it. But we should. So notice again, as John looks at him, and we described last week his garments and the, the sash or girdle that he had around him. Verse 14, his head 
and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and secondly, his eyes were as a flame of fire. It speaks, first of all, of the purity of Christ. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. This means that Jesus was absolutely pure. It means that he was sinless. You know, it's an intriguing thing for us to think about, and I think even the world thinks about that when we speak of Jesus Christ. The church speaks of Jesus Christ, and we say that he was the Son of God, that he was sinless, that he was perfect. The, an unbelieving world hears that. I think it's intriguing to them, but then they turn against it because they know the logical conclusion of accepting that. What if Jesus was sinless? What if he was God in the flesh and I'm not believing in him and I am cursing his name and using his name in vain? John, the same writer here in his gospel said, this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men what? Love darkness rather than light. This light of the sinless son of God who appears to be like God in his brightness, his whiteness, if you will, and his purity. Uh, he came into the world, but men love darkness rather than light. Because their deeds were evil, everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. And I don't want to come and study about this Jesus or hear about a, a, a Savior like that. I would rather talk about a man that's just as I am. You know, I'd rather talk about a sinner, uh, maybe a good moral teacher, maybe a good philosopher or someone like that. But if his head and his hairs were white like wool, this tells us and reminds us of some doctrines in Scripture that are obviously true of the Son of God. First of all, Jesus Christ was sinless. He lived in this world with a human body born of Mary though virgin-born, of course. And because he was virgin-born, he could be sinless, and he was. And the white here speaks of this purity. You remember Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration when Peter, James, and John saw him on the mount? Mark records it this way. His raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, as no fuller on earth can white them. No laundromat can get them this clean. You know, no dry cleaner can get them this clean. No fuller can scrub them and get them this clean. He looked at Christ and his glory was shining through in this radiant whiteness that speaks of his glory and of his sinlessness. And white usually in the scripture does speak of such things. In Matthew 28, uh, when uh, uh, the... Uh, uh, angel comes and rolls back the stone to the, to the tomb. It says his countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. Why? Because these were good angels. They've not fallen into sin. They are God's creatures around the throne of God. Or Acts 1.10, while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he was taken up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. An interesting fact is that the word white appears in the book of Revelation 19 times more than any other book in the Bible. 19 times in this book. And every one of these references to whiteness in the book of Revelation refers to purity. For example, Revelation 3 and verse 4 and 5, Thou hast a few names even in Sardis which have not defiled their garments. They shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. 
He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot his name out of the book of life. Or chapter 7, verse 13, one of the elders answered and said unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And on and on these descriptions go throughout the book of Revelation. Think about that. How can something be made white by being washed in blood? <laughs> and of course we know through forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Was he sinless? Listen to these verses. 1 Peter 2.22, who did no sin? Neither was guile found in his mouth. John says in 1 John 3, you know that he was manifested to take away our sins and in him is no sin. Paul writes to the Corinthians, he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Or listen to the book of Hebrews so many times. We have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we, yet without sin. For such a high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. And in chapter 9, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge our conscience from dead works to serve the living and true God. Jesus Christ is sinless. And that's why John sees him here on the Isle of Patmos and sees him shining in, with white hair and, and a white countenance about his head because he's sinless. The second thing, if we look into this microscope of Scripture here, we understand that Jesus Christ is also equal to God the Father. As a matter of fact, in Daniel 7, there is a unique description of God the Father. I'll read it to you, or uh, perhaps you find it later in Daniel 7, 9. But here, Daniel receives a vision of the kingdoms of this world that are going to exist, and then the fifth kingdom is Christ's kingdom. There would be Rome, or, uh, Babylon, and then Persia, and then Greece, and then Rome, and then God's kingdom. And so he sees these things, and, it, and Daniel 7, 9 says, I beheld until thrones were established, and the Ancient of Days did sit. Now, this is God the Father. Keep in mind what the description is in Revelation 1, 14, and listen to the description of God the Father. Whose garment was white as snow. This is the Ancient of Days. Whose garment is white as snow, and the hairs of his head were like pure wool. And his throne was like the fiery flame and his wheels as a burning fire. And what uh, are his eyes going to be look like? Look like like a flame of fire. And we find a few verses later in Daniel 7, 13. I saw in the night visions, behold, one like unto the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days. And they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom and all people, nations and languages shall serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, that which shall never be destroyed. Jesus Christ comes to the ancient of days. What do they look like? They look exactly alike because they are both God. As a matter of fact, you are in Revelation uh, one, just turn the page to look at Revelation 5, and you will see this description that Daniel gives us again in the book of Revelation. 
Here is God sitting on the throne, and chapter 5 describes him, uh, and uh, chapter 4 describes him. But verse, chapter 5 and verse 6 says, I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as it had been slain having seven, eyes, seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat on the throne. And if he has a speck of sin in him, he must die at this moment to approach God's throne and take the book out of his hand. But when he had taken the book, the four beasts, and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, To the Lamb now thou art worthy to take the book and open the seals, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nations, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth." And why can he do that? As Daniel said, he saw the Son of Man coming before the throne of God, and he was brought before him, and unto him were given the kingdoms of the earth. And here in Revelation 5, John sees Jesus coming as the Lamb of God to the Father, the Ancient of Days, and he receives the seven-sealed book, which as he opens it brings the kingdom of God to the earth. This is the same, is he not? This is God the Father. No wonder Isaiah prophesied and said, He is the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. God is one God manifested in three persons. And we see Jesus Christ, he said to Thomas, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. John Walvoord said of, of Daniel's prophecy, the attributes of the Father are also the attributes of the Son to whom power and authority have been given and who with the Father possesses all the attributes of God. So when we see Jesus Christ here in Revelation 1.14 with his head and his hair as white as wool, we are seeing God in his bodily form. And then, you know what we know also, as we keep looking at him, is that Jesus Christ can also forgive our sins and make us white as snow. Miracle of all miracles, folks. We who, have, who are dead in trespasses and sin. Isaiah said it, did he not? Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. You come and reason together with the Father. And maybe you'll say, Lord, I don't deserve it, but if you will give me forgiveness of my sins I will receive it and God says I will give it to you and you will be white as snow David said in Psalm 51 purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean wash me and I shall be whiter than snow Paul said it in first in second Corinthians he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him washed in the blood of the lamb John had seen this once before on the Mount of Transfiguration, as we said. John beheld his glory, as he says later, up on that mountain. Imagine, if you will, a light bulb. Can you, can you think of a light bulb that you'd screw into a socket? Just a little round light bulb. That light bulb, without the electricity turned on, is like Jesus in his natural body, if you will. He looked just like all the other light bulbs. He looked like all the other people. 
He had a physical existence, a physical body. And a light bulb like that can be uh, disconnected from uh, uh, any source, and it's still there. And that's the way you and I are. We don't have eternal life in us. We don't have light in us. But what happens when you put that bulb in a socket and you let the power come to it, then from inside that bulb comes brightness and shining uh, glory. And that is what John and Peter and James saw on that Mount of Transfiguration. God flipped the switch for a minute. And the light from within him came on and they saw the light shining through this physical receptacle, this body of the Lord Jesus Christ, until he turned the switch off. Peter, James, and John always remembered that. And Jesus even said, you can't speak about these things until after I'm dead and risen. Joseph Seiss said it like this, the light of the human eye is from without. Light comes to us from outside us and shifts its focal point as the rays happen to fall on it. But the light in the eye of Christ is from the divinity within and streams forth with steady, all-penetrating sharpness. From inside Jesus came this power to shine out to the disciples. And now John is seeing him once again on the, on the Isle of Patmos, and this glory is shining, and he sees it now. Uh, his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. So we see the purity of Christ. Secondly, <coughs> excuse my voice a little bit this morning. Secondly, we see the omniscience of Christ. A second description of Christ that John sees is, he said, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. You ever see someone that had eyes that just penetrated uh, when they looked? Uh, people talk about uh, penetrating eyes or the bright eyes of a scholar or something like that. Do you ever see somebody with eyes? No one ever saw a person with eyes like this. John describes the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they are as a flame of fire. And why does he use, by the way, that, that simile, as a flame of fire? Not that they were, but these eyes are so penetrating. These eyes see so much because he is God, and he is omniscient, and he knows everything, and he sees everything. The first thing we think about is that Jesus Christ sees and knows everything that there is to see and know. Psalm 34, the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. His ears are open unto their prayers. Psalm 66, he ruleth by his power forever. His eyes behold the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Psalm 139, in the mother's womb at the moment of conception, thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. And in thy book, all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. God's eyes saw us then. Or Proverbs, for the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he pondereth all his doings. The eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. The eyes of the Lord preserve knowledge, and he overthroweth the words of the transgressor. Jesus can see these things. You remember when the disciples were coming to Jesus, and someone went and got uh, Nathaniel? And Nathaniel, and he said to Nathaniel, we have found the Messiah, come and see. And Nathaniel said, where is he from? He says, well, he's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel said, well, no good thing can come out of Nazareth. I know that town. 
But he comes to Jesus and Jesus calls him by name. And Nathanael wonders, how did you know me? And Jesus said, I saw you sitting under the fig tree, Nathanael, long before now. And Nathanael all of a sudden realized that he saw him before he ever saw him. And immediately Nathanael says, Rabbi, thou art the son of God, the king of Israel. Because Jesus Christ can see you. You know what happens to a sinner when they realize all of a sudden that God sees them? and knows them, and knows their heart, and knows the, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good, you come to Jesus Christ for forgiveness, and you come to him to be cleansed of your sin. That's what. Jesus Christ also knows us intimately. He knows every part of us. I'm always fascinated by the thought that Jesus, or that, that God and Jesus, uh, knows when a sparrow falls. Every sparrow in the world. Now, I've been to a lot of places in the world, and you know what? There's sparrows everywhere. These little birds are everywhere. And they had them in Jerusalem. Uh, and they even used, you know, they used uh, the birds for, for sacrifice. And yet God sees every bird that dies and falls to the ground. And not only that, he knows the hairs on our head. And as I've said before, some of us aren't nearly as much trouble to God as others. But he knows how many hairs are on your head. Listen to this. Ask yourself if you believe that or not. Does God really know exactly, without an error, how many hairs are left growing in your head, coming out of your scalp right now? I see the heads going like this. How many people are in this world? How many uh, millions of people are in this world? And does God know every head and every hair of every person who has ever lived on this earth? And if you have to answer yes to that question, then you will fall at the feet of Jesus Christ prostrate and say, God, forgive me because I know you know all about me. And if we ever doubted that he took care of us, every doubted that he, that he cared for the trouble that we are going through, we would say, Father, forgive me for doubting you, because you see the sparrows fall from the ground. I mean, the thought of him knowing these kinds of things and being omniscient in this way, no wonder John sees his eyes as a flame of fire. Not only that, <clears throat> he knows your thoughts, doesn't he? He knows what you're thinking. Amos says, prepare to meet thy God, O Israel, for lo, he that formeth the mountains and createth the wind and declareth unto man what is his thought. He can tell you what you're thinking. Psalm 44, search, or, or shall not God search this out? For he knoweth the secrets of the heart. Psalm 94, the Lord knoweth the thoughts of man that they are vanity. And Paul quotes that to the Corinthians, the Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise that they are vain. He knows you. He knows every thought. You know, we have thought before, uh, you know, I know God sees me do things. And I know God hears me curse with my lips. I know he sees me fall into sin. But all oh, my thoughts are secret. My thoughts no one knows. I can sit here and the person next to me has no idea what I am thinking. And on the human realm, that's true, folks. But on the divine realm, he can tell you what you're about to think. He knows your thoughts. And if a person can grasp that and understand that, what would they do? Fall flat on their face and say, God, forgive me of my sin.
you are God and I am a worm, as Wesley said. I remember when Jesus, uh, in the Gospel of, of Luke, when Jesus was taken into uh, Herod's judgment hall and Peter was brought into the courtyard with John because John evidently knew some of the family of the high priest and he had Peter brought in with him and they're standing in the courtyard and of course Peter's warming his hands by the fire and Jesus is all the way over there and through an open door there's, there's a line of sight and as soon as, G as Peter standing by that fire for the third time says I don't know this man Jesus from way down there turned and looked back and those eyes pierced all the way through that open door and out into that courtyard and Peter's heart broke and he ran out and cried and every time we disappoint the Lord he turns folks and he sees us from heaven's gate or from wherever we are and those eyes penetrate to us and we go fall on our knees and say Lord forgive me and he's faithful and just to forgive us Thirdly, Jesus Christ will be the final judge, will he not? He has eyes like this because he will judge the world someday. Listen to Isaiah 11. Listen to what he says. With righteousness shall he judge and reprove the equity of the meek of the earth. He shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins and faithfulness the girdle of his reign. When he judges, these eyes will see everything exactly right and exactly in righteousness. Everyone will be without excuse. No one will be able to say, well, Lord, you don't understand. Because he sees everything. So when we see him in Revelation 19 coming in the clouds of heaven, he's called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he doth judge and make war. No wonder the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, isn't it? The word of God is Christ's word. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. He sees us all. Now what about your eyes? And what about your thoughts? Let me remind you of these things. Proverbs 4 says, Let thine eyes look right on and thine eyelids straight before thee. Tempted to look aside, tempted to look in ways that you should not look, let thine eyes look right on and thine eyelids straight before thee. Let the light of the, or excuse me, the light of the eyes rejoiceth the heart and a good report maketh the bones fat. Let your eyes look at good things and it will rejoice your heart. Proverbs 21, every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord pondereth the hearts. Proverbs 23, wilt thou set thine eyes upon that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings and they fly away as an eagle toward heaven, which our economy knows well. Eat thou not the bread of him that hath an evil eye, neither desire thou his dainties eating with people that have evil eyes. Or Proverbs 30, there is a generation that are pure in their own eyes and yet is not washed from their filthiness. Our generation, folks, pure in their own eyes and are not washed from their filthiness. There is a generation, oh, how lofty are their eyes and their eyelids are lifted up. And that is the world in which we live. Will we be like them? I wonder sometimes if our churches 
are not like those people on that Palm Sunday who on Sunday said, Hosanna, save us now. And on Monday said, crucify him, we'll not have this man to reign over us. Do our eyes and our mouth confess him when we're sitting amongst brethren and in a protected place? But when we have to walk with the ungodly, then our mouth and our eyes deny him? Do we say Hosanna and say, yet crucify him? You know what you will, the next time you see the Lord Jesus Christ, you will see him like this. But when you see him like this, it's too late for decision time. The day of repentance is gone. The day of salvation will be over, and he will come as your judge. He will receive you, Christian, unto himself. Are your sins confessed? Have you turned those things over to him? Oh, you will be saved eternally, and your sins will not uh, be judged against you, but oh, will you disappoint your Lord? And will you be sad in your heart even at the bema seat of Christ when, when all of your works are wood, hay, and stubble? and not gold, silver, and precious stone. Confess those things now. Turn them over to him now and live in this life as a believer with a heart and eye toward God. And if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ is your Savior, uh, excuse the term you're praying, Russian roulette with your soul. You're gambling each day that there will be another day that your heart will not stop this day and you will go out into eternity. You are hoping that uh, these things that the scripture says will not be true, but folks, they are true. And in a moment, you could see this Jesus and stand before him lost and only hear him say, depart from me that work iniquity, I never knew you. What a sad day that would be. I admonish you to make these things right with God, even as we have heard them from the word of God. Stand with me, if you will, this morning. So we prepare for a song of invitation. <clears throat> Let's go to him in prayer as we prepare to sing. Now, Father, what wonderful words these are from your book. Inspired of the Holy Spirit, descriptions of our very Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Descriptions of God the Father in your righteousness and purity and holiness. Oh, Father, we stand before you as needy people, even your children of God, blood bought with the, with the blood of Jesus Christ. Help us in this flesh that we live in, Father, to still honor you and glorify you. And then, Father, there may be some here that don't know Christ as Savior, and maybe through these things, with this look at Jesus Christ, they realize they must come and bow before him and ask his forgiveness and accept the salvation that he has to offer. May that happen today too. Father, whatever your will is in our life, cause us to respond the way we need to respond and do your will even today. We ask it and thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Page 309. Softly and tenderly, we know this song well. 309.